My name's Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Well, it's an enormous privilege for me to introduce our guest on this edition of Bridges to the Future. He's appropriately enough recording this from his garage. So, Matthew Crawford, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So, Matthew, saving your blushes, I am an enormous fan of your work, of your writing. I'm absolutely loving When We Drive, which is your new book. And I want to get into all of that. But as you've kindly agreed to be on our podcast, I have to subject you to the question that we subject all our guests to, because we first set this podcast up at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Of course, it's still absolutely raging in America. But Matt Crawford, what do you see as being the big idea we need for the post-COVID world? Boy, (laughs) that's a a tough one. I, I don't really have a prescription. I guess I have an observation or two. Well, it seems like the population, at least in the U.S., is more or less evenly divided between those who have accepted the lockdown with relative equanimity and those who really haven't. And I think for those who haven't, it has to be tied to this wider distrust of institutions that has been really blossoming in the West the last several years. So I think what those people are seeing is an episode of government by crisis, where safety, health and safety is invoked to pursue ends other than safety. Emergency powers are always attractive to whoever's running things. So you see, for example, this asymmetry in the application of ideas like, you know, don't congregate. You know, if it's for the sake of protests that are sort of line up with elite opinion, then it's okay, otherwise not. So I think it's contributed to the sort of cynicism about institutions in the West. So that's an important theme of your book why we drive and the first thing i think for a british audience and by the way one of the great things about your book is you seem to be rather fond of our funny little island there's quite a lot about london and taxi drivers and the way we drive and things like that but i think the first thing for british listeners is you are i think it's a gearhead in america we say petrol heads in britain of course you're a car enthusiast now the notion of a car enthusiast and what's more a car enthusiast who is worried about the way in which the state kind of mollycoddles people, takes risks away, intrudes into people's lives. That carries with it a kind of set of assumptions about your overall political position. But yet it's much more nuanced than that. But is that a general issue you have, Matt, which is that people hear the topic of your book and they hear elements of your argument and they assume that you go for the whole kind of libertarian package, as it were? 
Yeah, well, there are elements of a libertarian sensibility in there. I guess I would say two things by way of distinguishing what I'm doing in this book from that. One would be simply to point out that often it's not the government that is the source of kind of efforts to remove the human element from every human activity in the name of safety or convenience. Often that proceeds through automation you know, which often points to the least competent among us to justify the program of removing human control, which of course, you know, leads to a de-skilling, which in turn, because our skills, you know, atrophy from lack of use, just like a muscle, which in turn leads to demands for further automation. So we can get into that later, but to return to the question of libertarianism, the second point I would make is that Really, one of the central concerns in this book, Why We Drive, is that of social trust, which is an issue that doesn't really seem to be on the radar of libertarians. So, you know, at an urban intersection, I describe being a passenger in London or just observing an intersection in, say, Rome, where it appears to be chaotic. There's no rules apparently being followed. And yet, People cooperate. They seem to be able to predict one another's behavior. They're somehow all on the same page. And to me, that looks like a marvel of social trust. And I'm trying to understand that and uh, sort of hold it up as something hopeful. So we must talk about your book and then maybe go on to other issues. But your book, I mean, it's about a lot of things. But one thing it's about is your worries about driverless cars. Now, actually, I remember saying to the team at the RSA five years ago, I suggested that we have an event called Five Years to Driverless Cars. And I said to them with great confidence, we will carry on. We'll be able to have an event called Five Years to Driverless Cars every year for a very, very long time. So my kind of critique of driverless cars is just that I don't think they're going to happen because I just think it's all far too complicated. But you, I think you're slightly skeptical about the technology, but your deeper worry is about the idea that a world where we can sit in our car and be online and filling in our latest Facebook post or whatever is not actually a great world. Yeah, well, I share your skepticism about the likelihood of this. I think the hype has far outstripped the actual prospects for this. But yeah, I take it worrisome sort of as an index of this broader aspiration to, again, sort of take human beings out of the loop of every human activity. And in that respect, it's quite revealing, regardless of how realistic the hope is. So by way of illustrating that, there was this episode where a Google self-driving car came up on an intersection, and it was a four-way stop. We have a lot of those in the U.S. And so it came to a complete stop and waited for the other drivers to do the same before proceeding through. But, of course, that's not what people do. They roll through it. They, you know, Often there's ambiguous cases of right-of-way, namely who got there first. So... One person might wave another through, they make eye contact, there's almost a body language of driving. And it works just fine for the most part. But what happened is the Google car, because people weren't following rules, it got paralyzed. It didn't know what to do and just kind of melted down. And it's interesting, the, the chief Google engineer said that what he had learned from the episode is that human beings need to be less idiotic. And of course, what he meant by that is they need to behave more like robots, that is, be strict rule followers. So 
the kind of social intelligence on display at that intersection was completely invisible to him because it's not the kind of thing that you can easily reproduce with machine logic. So if you think that the mind is basically an inferior version of a computer, this is the conclusion you come to, that humans need to essentially get out of the way to make way for the robot cars. One of the people that I don't think you mentioned in the book, I haven't I've read most of it and all of it, but the book made me think of a bit was Eleanor Ostrom and her work on self-organizing communities in which she wants, amongst other things, I think, to say to us, there are ways in which people do things which neither rely entirely on rules, the state, nor rely entirely on kind of market incentives, but involve patterns which human beings have developed. And we ought to understand those and respect those much more, partly because they turn out to be much more effective ways of doing things than relying on state or market. Yeah, that's a beautiful thought. And I think that's a thought you can find. Well, there's an American political science named James C. Scott, who offers a similar thought. And you could even trace it back, I think, to, say, Burke in the English tradition, the idea that communities have norms that develop over time. They're sort of deeply sedimented in the people. They're sort of unthought. They're almost unconscious. And yet they order everyday life such that you don't have to explicitly apply some rule and of course, this is embedded in the tradition of English common law, which is not simply a body of statutes, but an accumulated body of practices. A point of contrast to that is the rationalist project of trying to render society completely kind of transparent and explicit and apply rules for the rationalization of society. So this is this is more the French spirit, right? Beginning with the Napoleonic Code coming out of the French Revolution. And it's a spirit that has always been with us for the last couple hundred years. The other writer that your book put me in mind of a couple of times was the British anthropologist Mary Douglas, who developed a kind of a way of thinking which encouraged us to understand the particular cultures within institutions and how those cultures inclined us to particular ways of thought. And the reason I thought of her was that one of the writers in her tradition, who was an expert on risk, and a lot of your book is about risk and about safety, was one of the first people to discover that when we made cars safer... Yes, we reduced the number of people who were damaged inside the car, but we often increased the number of people damaged outside the car. And indeed, he argued that the most effective way to make cars safer would simply to have a nail in the steering wheel pointed at the heart of the driver, because his point was simply cars are individualistic spaces. And the problem is that when you apply rules to them, those rules often don't go right because people don't want their cars to be rule-bound spaces exactly. Yeah, driving has this interesting hybrid quality to it. You're enclosed in your private property, and I think it encourages a kind of solipsism. I think we all feel that. It's like the world revolves around you. Everyone else is simply in your way. But on the other hand, the road is this shared space where we have to cooperate. So it's kind of a nice microcosm of this tension between you know, radical individualism, which is quite prominent in the U.S. especially, on the one hand, and on the other hand, hopes for social solidarity. What you mentioned about having a nail in the steering wheel, that's great. There was a guy named John Muir who wrote a famous service manual for Volkswagens back in the 60s. 
And what he said was, if we all drove as if we were strapped to the front of the car like an Aztec sacrifice, there'd be a lot less accidents. And it's interesting. There's been some research on the idea that we have a risk budget. So if you make the car safer in some respects, our driving behavior adapts. We drive in a more risky way because we sort of keep constant the amount of risk that we're willing to take on. Well, I just want to say before we move on to other things that as a kind of social democrat in my own political leanings and therefore absolutely inclined to the kind of lazy assumptions that cars are basically bad things owned by bad people who don't care, your book was a kind of revelation. Even, you know, I don't care about cars at all, but it made me, really made me think much more deeply. And the important thing for me was it kind of challenged some of my own lazy prejudices. And I want to come to that point, Matt, because one of the things that shines out from your book is your affection for the American people. As you travel around the country, participating in or observing various kind of races and events, often I assume with people whose politics you wouldn't necessarily agree with in every way or whatever, you just like these people. And the reason that was powerful for me was because at the moment, Almost everything we hear about America is so grim and it's all about polarization and kind of decay. How does your kind of sinuous civic Republican love of America hold up in these terrible circumstances? Yeah. So for those who haven't read it, I travel around to different sort of grassroots motorsport scenes and different automotive subcultures as an anthropologist, more or less. And... What really stood out was the spirit of play, understood as a sort of competitive spirit in which it's sort of a hostility and friendship combined, much as in any kind of sport. And it did strike me as a place where certain elements of the human spirit are being kept alive. And these are more or less self-governing communities. There's very little bureaucratic oversight. They just come together to do things together. And it struck me as just the thing that Alexis de Tocqueville was describing when he traveled around America. And he was very impressed by the spirit of self-government. In other words, people solving problems together and working things out. And for him, that was an important element of the democratic personality, that inclination to just in a kind of improvisational way, figure things out together. So yeah, I was heartened. I don't want people listening to think that your book is primarily a kind of anti-statist book. I mean, actually, if anything, you target more, you know, big tech. But nevertheless, I'm kind of interested in, you know, I'm 59. So I can just about kind of remember the 60s and the early 70s. And then one associated the kind of free spirit of Americans kind of traveling around and pushing at the boundaries and playing with the left. Actually, you associated it with a kind of revolt against the establishment or anti-Vietnam or the drug culture. It was the liberal left that personified this kind of spirit. Now it kind of feels as though it's the right that is trying to hold on to that. Is that too simplistic an understanding of what's happened in America? Well, I think it's a useful formula for thinking about the present. I hadn't heard it expressed quite so starkly, but I like the formula. Yeah, and this is connected to our populist moment, clearly. 
I think maybe a good working definition of who's a populist is someone who's suspicious of rule by experts. And the experts always want to, to make us more safe and sort of save us from ourselves. So insofar as uh, sort of it's the left that kind of is the governing party of institutions in general in the West, I think you could make a good case for that. Anyone who feels constricted, anyone who feels like there's this tightening grid of social control is likely to be identified as being on the right so it's, it is a very interesting inversion of just what you said, the previous kind of baby boomer generation, their revolt against society was taken to be a thing of the left. One of the things that you talk about in the book and you've talked about in other work is the importance of kind of the tacit understanding and trust between people. And another image that came to my mind, I, I hope you recognize this, but have you seen the film Gran Torino? Yeah, I have, long time ago. I was remembering the scene when Clint Eastwood takes the young, I think, he's a Vietnamese boy into the barbers and he's teaching him how to kind of do kind of badinage, how to kind of do banter with the guy who's running the bar and they abuse each other in a most awful way, but they do it because there is a common understanding between these two grizzled old guys. And then the young boy goes out and he comes in and he just abuses the barber in a way that completely fails to get it. And it's a wonderful illustration of a kind of tolerance that feels, and I'm going to say tolerance, I don't mean tolerance of racism, I'm talking about that, but I'm saying a kind of a tolerance of idiosyncrasy, which seems somehow to be being diminished at the moment. Yeah, I don't remember that scene, but I love your description of it. It sounds like a description of the kind of playful insulting that can happen when there is a background of, again, of social trust and some shared kind of vocabulary. And that's your interest in, I mean, I think part of the car thing and something else that you've written about in terms of craft is that having something outside yourself that is the focus is a really important part of this, that you don't build community or trust by talking about community or trust. You build it by working on cars together or building a house together or something like that. So you want to emphasize the importance of the material as a place where human beings can fully express themselves. Yeah, the kind of material world is, to use a kind of philosophical jargon, is a place of intersubjective validity. That just means that it's a place of objective reality where people can sort of gather around it and see the same thing because material reality has its own... It lets you know right away if you've misinterpreted it. Say if you're riding a skateboard, you fall on your ass and there's no interpreting away the, the physical pain that comes from that. So it's true. Communities of practice that demand skill seem to provide a venue for solidarity. And so it's the picture of people standing shoulder to shoulder rather than face to face. So they're facing some practice that has its own demands upon us to which we have to submit. So it's not a matter of imposing your will on others. It's a matter of together gaining mastery through a shared submission to reality, really. Yeah, and you've written eloquently in the past of the literal resistance of material objects and what we learn from 
dealing with them and the reality they present to us, whether it's metal or wood or whatever. I mean, if I'd read your books when I was younger, I would have paid attention in class to both science and to, you know, the limited access we had to things like woodwork and metalwork. And the number of young people now who can go through their lives without ever really having that kind of experience, the experiences that you've described so richly in so many of your books, that's a kind of tragedy, isn't it? I think so. I think it tends to nudge people into a kind of self-satisfaction where it's, it's easier to sustain a fantasy of mastery and competence when most of your life is taking place on a screen. So, for example, in playing video games, you you know, you blow stuff up and you get blown up and then you just hit reset and there are no real consequences to your actions. You know, in Freud's account, that kind of relationship to objects where they seem to be just extensions of your own will, that's the basis of what he called infantile narcissism. It's like a failure to appreciate that the world does not revolve around you. You said at the beginning, Matt, that your book isn't really about kind of big ideas of the future. And it's not a criticism of your book to say that a lot of it is a warning about what we're in danger of carelessly letting go. But I want just in the little time we've got left to maybe strike a kind of more forward looking note, which is that my area of expertise is work and quality of work and the regulation of work. And in particular, I've argued for the notion of good work. I've argued that policymakers shouldn't just be satisfied with making sure people have jobs. We should be satisfied with the satisfactions and fulfillment that people get in work. And and if I have a some sense of optimism about the future, and, and in some ways the impact that lockdown has had on some people, I get a sense that we are starting to move to a time when people will start to say every job should be a good job. The idea that you only work in order to earn and that work is otherwise kind of meaningless or pointless or, you know, irrelevant to your own sense of meaning, that maybe that idea, which has only really been around, I guess, since the Industrial Revolution, that maybe that idea now is going to come under sustained pressure? Or is that pie in the sky, do you think? Yeah, well, I first, of course, I share your hopes for how we could understand work, you know, as feeding the whole human person and not simply something to be measured by, you know, the wage it receives. I always have on the other shoulder of, you know, if there's the <laughs> the two little voices on either end of your head. This voice from the book of Genesis, where we learn that work is toilsome, and that's sort of the human condition that is tied to, you know, what it means to be an embodied being. If we start to think of work as something that should be fulfilling, I think that can lead into kind of hopes that are bound to be dashed. Now, the problem is if you embrace that too wholeheartedly, you lose any capacity to criticize the degradation of work, which I think is a concern that we share. So, question mark? <laughs> I don't know how to end that sentence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess what I'm saying Matt, is that, yeah, I agree with you. I'm not suggesting that all work can be blissful. And, you know, I think one of the good things actually that happened in the lockdown in the UK, I'm sure it happened a bit in America as well, is the outpouring of empathy for key workers, you know, and that understanding that, you know, there's a way to be a shop worker, which makes an enormous difference to people, you know, and I found myself saying thank you with meaning. I've always said thank you because I'm a polite guy to the people who serve me in the shops, but not with meaning. And I found that when I said it with meaning, there's a connection and that changes the nature of that job. So I'm not suggesting that we can all be philosophers or we can all be, 
you know, carpenters or whatever. But actually, almost any job, it seems to me, can be designed in a way to maximise a sense of human achievement and contact. Or it can equally be designed to dehumanise and atomise people. Well, I'm really glad that you pointed to this current shift that I think a lot of people are feeling where we're suddenly recognizing how dependent we are on people who provide what we now call, rightly, essential services, which are easily just become invisible to us or, or taken for granted. And if it opens the way to that kind of human connection that you're talking about, that's a great thing. And it kind of recalls us to our community and solidarity. You said something else towards the end of your last remarks that I wanted to pick up on. I guess the point is that I'm not arguing for a kind of hierarchy of work with philosophy professors at the top and security guards at the bottom. I'm arguing that some people need to be security guards, but actually you can treat security guards, you can design the work, you can interact with security guards in ways which honour the contribution that they're making, but you can also employ them in ways which deny them pride or autonomy or limit their capacity to interact with people. You can just design jobs in ways in which they just feel like they're tiny cogs, they're not connected to anything else. So I think if one of the things that's happened is that we think more deeply about the way we design work, that would be a good thing. Yeah. And it's not an easy question, as you know, how to kind of institutionalize this human element where we kind of accord work its dignity, because so often it does seem to depend on just what you described, your initiative as the customer in extending that gratitude to someone who's exposing themselves to risk in that way. But I think that partly comes from the idea, well, this isn't a job I'd want to do. And I think that if those jobs, if the status of those jobs rises as it has done, and people no longer just kind of feel embarrassed in a sense, as if it's to say, well, I'm glad I don't have to do this job, then you can, I think, start, if you see the dignity in it in all work, then I think if we let our imaginations play, we can hopefully make things different. Because I think the idea, and, and you've written about this in Shop Class as Soulcraft, it's a wonderful book, but you know, the idea that work can be kind of in any form, you know, like it can be as meaningless, as repetitive and as pointless as possible. And people will accept that simply because they can go out and buy more stuff. I'd love that to be an outdated idea. Yeah, well, now you're touching on really something pretty fundamental. You know, if we have an economy that's predicated on endless growth and the growth is driven by consumption, <laughs> then we seem to kind of lock ourselves into a form of political economy where the only real measure of value is productivity. So, yeah... <laughs> We're getting into uh, it's a radical territory here, Matthew. Well, yeah. And the deal is the Henry Ford deal, which is, you know, your job might be shit, but you can buy a car, you know. And I can understand that when people couldn't afford cars, but maybe in a society, if it's better ordered, where people have their basic necessities and people have more choice, we can get away from the idea, which is you have no choice but to do a job that lacks dignity. But anyway, look, I'm. this is an interview with you, not an opportunity for me to be on my soapbox. Matt Crawford, it's been an absolute honour to talk to you. I recommend strongly why we drive, but I recommend all your work because it's been an inspiration to me. Thank you for spending time talking to me. Well, thank you very much, Matthew. It's been a, a real pleasure. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. 
the RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.